If you would, join me in opening your Bibles to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. Isaiah is just a little bit to the right of the middle of your Bible. If the book of Psalms is about in the middle, just work your way to the right a bit and you'll find a larger book called Isaiah. We'll be in Isaiah 59 this morning as we think about Christmas and we think about the coming of Christ. Before we actually get into the the text, I want to pose a question to you uh, that is a common question. And it's an important question. And that is, why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't God do something about the crimes in this world? Why doesn't God do something about our suffering? Why doesn't God do something about the injustice that we witness? Why doesn't God do something to intervene in this problematic world where there are so many people doing such outrageous things? It's a good question. It's a good question anytime. It's a good question even at Christmas time. Maybe even a good question, especially at Christmas time. When we hear things like joy to the world, we hear Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And there's something in us that wants to say, really? It doesn't look like it. I love to sing joy to the world. It's a great song. I love to hear someone say peace on earth and goodwill toward men, but it doesn't look like it. Why doesn't God do something? This morning, Isaiah 59 helps us. It helps us to answer that question appropriately. It helps us to answer that question in a way that is fitting. It helps us, if you will, to understand Christmas better apart from the Christmas cliches. And so we're going to look at this text of Scripture. It is a Christmas passage. I have to give you forewarning. It's not going to feel like it, at least till the end. Okay? So, uh, before you say that was the worst Christmas thing I've ever heard in my life, there wasn't anything merry about it, I think in the long run it will serve us well. It really will help us to put Christmas in a greater context, in the context in which God meant it. You know, we, we hear Isaiah 9, 6, uh, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. That's another Christmas text from Isaiah. This one isn't quite as well known, but it's another Christmas text because it's, it is about the coming of the King. It is about the coming of the Savior. But it helps us to see the bigger picture, so hopefully in the end it'll even be more meaningful, or better yet, it'll be meaningful in the way that it's supposed to be meaningful. So hang in there with me, if you would, until the end, and I think you might leave with joy in your heart. But in the meantime, I'm not totally sure, okay? So here's what we're going to do. Isaiah 59, and we'll allow it to answer the question with three answers. Why doesn't God do something? Isaiah gives us enough information that we can have three really good answers to that question. Three helpful answers to that question that aren't cliche, that aren't canned, um, that aren't trivial. Number one, why doesn't God do something? Number one, it isn't because he can't. It isn't because he can't. 
And we see this in the first verse. The first verse of Isaiah 59 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Notice the emphasis on, it isn't this and it isn't this. It isn't uh, that, he, that he cannot hear when we ask for help. God, do something. Please help us. And he doesn't. It isn't that he can't hear. And when he doesn't do what we've asked him to do, it isn't that he lacks the ability or the strength, the power. Now, I don't know about you, but when you think about that for a moment, it can be a little unsettling. We want all of our requests to be answered. This is unsettling enough that some have actually suggested that, well, God hears, but he actually can't do anything. Isaiah doesn't want us to go down that road. He's reminding us of what we all know to be true, and that is God is all-powerful. He can do whatever He wants to do, and God is personal. He does hear. So that's not the issue. So when we, we witness calamity and tragedy and awful things happening, and we say, God, do something, and He doesn't, it isn't because He can't hear us. He's not hard of hearing, and it isn't because he's not strong, he's strong, he could do something. Now that right there is enough to kind of unsettle us. Now let's move to another answer. Number two, why doesn't God do something? I almost don't want to say this, it really doesn't sound seasonal. (laughs) Should I do it? (laughs) Okay, I'll be risky. Why doesn't God do something? Number two, it is because He won't. It is because He won't. Now, maybe you want to put a parenthesis, at least yet. (laughs) At least whenever we ask sort of thing. There's some qualification there. We're going to get to Him answering later. But there's a time where He doesn't answer. And it's not that he can't, it's that he will not. He refuses to give help. Unsettling, yes, but we're on our way to understanding. We're on our way to understanding salvation. We're on our way to understanding grace. We're on our way to understanding salvation in Christ. Let me explain before we actually read the verses. We're going to read verses 2 to 15 at that second answer to the question. See, here's what's happening. People are crying out to God in Isaiah's day. Okay, The people of Israel are saying, God, do something about all of these bad people. There's injustice over here. There's lying over here. There's killing over here. There's immorality over there. God, do something. God, judge those bad people. God, get them. Execute justice on the earth. It isn't that God can't or doesn't hear, it's that God won't do that. And what we're going to see is God won't do it because the people saying, God, stop those bad people, are themselves bad. So here we're saying, God, you need to get those sinners if we're Israel. God graciously doesn't get those sinners because the people who are asking for the help 
are sinners too, are rebels, are lawbreakers. The pot calling the kettle black, sometimes we say. So even though it's going to get dark and serious here, we're on our way. We're on our way to understanding that we actually don't want what we're asking for. Because if God wipes out all the bad people, (laughs) there won't be anybody left. God isn't going to help until even those who are asking for the help understand that they're as guilty as everybody else. That's really what's going on here. I like what one person said. So it isn't that God can't help, but that he won't help until even the complainers see that they too are guilty. This has some relevance to our day. We see plenty of injustice and we see horrific things happen and we see things that make us upset and you know what? They make God upset too. But God wants everyone to notice and see and know full well that no one is actually innocent. And until we get that, we will never get that. Until we understand That reality, the guiltiness of it, we'll never understand the grace. We'll never understand Christ and His coming. So that's where we're headed just by way of preview. I think it might make it it more meaningful. Let's jump right in in verse 2 where it says, But your iniquities, your lawlessness, your law-breaking, your offenses against me, God is saying, and He's talking to the very people who would name the name of God and ask for help. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Notice the the contrast between verse 1. It's not that he can't hear. It's that he does not hear. He refuses to hear. The people are complaining about the societal sins and they need to realize that that actually they're they're just as guilty. That's what we're going to see. Verse 3 says, For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. You're guilty. Oh, yes, you may, you may rebel against God and, and act immorally in more sophisticated ways behind closed doors in ways that, that are um, culturally okay. But he's saying, you, you, you guys are guilty too. You're, you're, you're busted too. Verse 3 goes on to say, Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongues mutter wickedness. No one utters suit justly. Enter suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. He wants us to see it as gross. Notice the, the, the kind of images he's using. Giving birth. Oh, new life. Hopeful. Wonderful. A baby is born. He's saying, you know what? You pervert even good things to the point where you give, you give birth to sin. You give birth to destruction. You give birth to death. This is, this is really hard on our self-esteem, but maybe that's what he's trying to do. Notice what he goes on to say if we keep reading in verse 3. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. Speak lies. I guess we've already covered that part. And then he's more picturesque describing these quote-unquote good people who want God to get rid of the bad people. Look what it says in verse 5. They hatch adder's eggs. 
They weave the spider's web. He, he who eats their eggs dies. And, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. That's, that's their good works. That's what they're up to, actually. Verse 6 says, Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, works of sin, work of re, works of rebellion. And deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil. That's actually where they excel, is what he's saying. And they are swift to shed innocent blood. And just when you want to say, hey, not me, I'm a good person, because I've never killed anybody, I try my best, ask any of my friends, he goes for what Jesus goes for in the Sermon on the Mount. Look what he says in that next little statement in verse 7, their thoughts Oh, now we're on the inside. Now we, we can't hide it. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. See, now he's dealing with the heart, not just the externals. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace, they do not know. God, establish peace on the earth. We have our enemies and they want to make war with us. God, we want shalom. And he says, you who are asking don't know the first thing about shalom. You're like the people you want God to get. Pretty heavy, huh? I warned you. Merry Christmas. <laughs> We're going to understand the guilt before we understand the grace. Is what's happening here. Then it says, if we continue moving in verse 8, and there is no justice in their paths. They've made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. It's all the opposite from what we actually say. Our actions give us away. Verse 10, we grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. It's even worse than blind. There's no hope for a cure. It's... it's, it's, it's that big of a deal. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation is for salvation, but it is far from us. God, bring justice. God, take all evil people and punish them. God, bring peace. And he's saying, you guys don't know. You don't know what you're asking for. It's not that it isn't right to want those things. I mean, on a certain level, we all understand God's perspective, right? We're made in his image, even though it's, it's twisted. We're still made in his image. And, and, and so we see injustice and we say, that's not right. Something needs to be done. So God would be in agreement. You know what? Something does need to be done. That is wrong, and there should be a consequence for that wrong action. And it's easy for you, and it's easy for me, like it was easy for them to see it in other people and say, yeah, that's a, that person is, is bad. Something needs to be done to, to that person to, to pay for their crimes. I have to be careful when I'm pointing. You know? But it's more difficult when it comes to you and when it comes to me and admitting our own guilt 
You know, we, we've met the enemy and the enemy is us. And God graciously is using Isaiah to have these people who are crying for justice to see that in a sense they don't want it. They don't know what they're talking about. Because they need to be more honest with themselves as to who they are before God. And then we see in verse 12 something striking and that is that God knows exactly what's on the inside. Verse 12 says, For our transgressions, that's another word for sin, rebelliousness, breaking the law of God. Our transgressions are multiplied. Notice what it says. There are two important words, before you. So we might be able to get away with things socially, culturally, uh, but here, before you, before God. And our sins testify against us. Notice the irony. The people are calling for God, the judge, to come and to set up court of law and for witness. And these guys are saying, I'll bear witness against them. And Isaiah the prophet is saying, hey, there'll be a judge. And you know what? We'll testify against you. It'll be your own sins. It's really dark. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from, our, from the heart lying words. Notice this isn't just because we're in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's from the heart lying words. As our Lord would say, it is out of the heart that comes these things. The real you, the real me. 14 says, justice has turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. 15 says, truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. It's so bad, according to verse 15, that if, he's already universalized it, everybody's guilty, but even if there were somebody to break out of the mold and do the right thing, they couldn't survive. They would be preyed upon. Things are so perverse and twisted that you are part of this perverse and twisted system. And if you could break out of it, you would be devoured because you got to work with the system to even survive. And we should be thankful in light of those words and those verses that God hasn't done what so many of us have asked him to do. Please think about that. We should be thankful that God hasn't done what so many of us have asked him to do. God, get the bad people. Get all who are sinful. God's word is communicating to us that we should be thankful that God hasn't done that. I mean, this is the way to understanding grace. It's understanding our guiltiness. Because it would be condemnation for everybody. Grasping grace requires grasping guiltiness. This is what Paul does in Romans chapter 1 to 3. We'll never understand the gospel if we don't understand our guilt. See, what happens is we think God is like a genie, you know? He's not the creator, sovereign, all-knowing, all-seeing judge who gives people what they deserve. He's like the genie, you know. Do, 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 do. Giving myself away as being older than some of you. 
Some of you know what I'm talking about. Now I just messed up the image. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm just trying to be culturally relevant to the older people. Okay? I'm being missional. <laughs> God is some kind of genie where we, we rub the bottle and he does what we say. He's not all-knowing, so we can just get him to do what we say. Hey, God, I want you to stop sinners because they're messing up my life. And by the way, sin and rebellion against God does mess up the world. It's true. But the problem is, I want God to stop all of those bad people from doing bad things because it's messing up my life because I, even though I might hide it better than other people, need Jeannie to do these things for me so I can do my bad things. Is the image. This is before the eyes of God. That's what made verse 12 so pointed. Multiplied before you. He's not a genie. He's the all-knowing, all-wise God. He's not fooled. It's not that he can't bring deliverance. He won't bring deliverance, at least at this point in time. I remember a conversation I had with a woman one time and uh, someone who makes a living from drawing things that would make a lot of us uncomfortable. Drawing demons and drawing demons and angels and things with hell. Interesting conversation. And she said, oh, you know, she found out I was a pastor. Oh, you're a reverend. Tell me, what do you know about demons? It wasn't because she wanted to try to get her theology straight. She just wanted to, to have her mind be able to understand some more and have more data so she could draw differently or better or, or whatever it might be. But it was one of those times where I gave the right answer and I usually don't give the right answer on my feet. You know those times when you say the right thing and you're like, man. The Lord must have given me the right answer because I never come up with the right answer on the spot. Because she said, so what do you believe about hell? And I had the right answer because I said, well, let me start by telling you that I should be there right now. I'm going, that was an awesome answer inside. I couldn't believe that just came out of my mouth because this just teed up the perfect ball for me to be able to preach the gospel to this person. Because she was like, what? You're, you're a pastor, you know, you're, you're holy, you know, you're, you're close to God. What do you mean you should be in hell? And it was a great opportunity to talk about the things we're talking about. As the Apostle Paul would say, no one is good, no, not one. It's before the eyes of God. Be careful what you ask for. We're never going to understand joy to the world. We're never really going to understand it beyond some sort of cliche level if we don't understand that we're guilty. I mean, what are we going to do? Oh, Jesus is born. Isn't that nice? You know, as I like to say, well, then that's nice because we're nice and God's nice. And isn't that nice? Merry Christmas. It's no wonder that the world doesn't understand us. Certainly no wonder that the world doesn't understand Jesus. If we ourselves don't, understanding, grasping by God's grace some brutal honesty about guiltiness 
puts us on the path to understanding the realities of grace. God giving us what we don't deserve. And then we're on to something and we're on to what we heard this morning from Matthew chapter 1. Name Him Jesus because He will save His people from their sin, from their rebellion, from their spiritual anarchy, from their spiritual treason. That's why we'll call Him Jesus because He is God's solution to giving us not what we deserve but something that is gracious and kind and wonderful and we say joy to the world. Peace. Oh yes, there can be peace on earth because there's peace with God. Romans 5. It becomes wonderful and it becomes so much beyond the the, the, the sappy sentimentalism that actually ends up meaning quite honestly nothing. And it helps us to answer the question, why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't God get the bad people? Answer, because He's long-suffering and gracious. Because if He got the bad people, all we would hear are crickets. (laughs) Because we wouldn't be alive. Now we're on to something. Now we're, we're on to, 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 to seeing something grand and wonderful. Why doesn't God do something? Number three, He will and He has. He will and He has. The latter part of 15 to 21. Let me set it up so we can just read it nicely. He will, and I want to say it that way because Isaiah is writing before the incarnation, before the coming of Jesus future looking. He will do something. Not only should we say it that way for that reason, because, but also He will do something because in Christ's coming, you have first coming and second coming and Isaiah is looking at it from one perspective as is common in the Old Testament. Okay, if you didn't get that, I'll just repeat it. Common in the Old Testament is to have the coming of the King, coming of the Savior, coming of the Redeemer, coming of the Messiah, first and second coming put together. Okay, He comes as Savior and Judge and they just address it as one thing. Whereas we get to the New Testament, we see there's a, there's a distinction between timing, coming, first coming, coming, second coming. So I want to say God has done something and God will do something. But the key is it's in Christ that He does these things. What's also interesting is When we move on to the New Testament, which we're not going to do a lot this morning of that, we go to the New Testament, we see a connection between first and second coming, and it's this connection. Because of what he did in his first coming here on earth, it is absolutely certain and secure regarding what he will do when he returns. It's as good as done, because he's proven his claims to be true, and he's proven to be the victor by his resurrection and his ascension. Okay, with that in mind, let's see that peace on earth will come. He's going to come and judge, and he's going to come and rescue both of them in verses 15 and following. The latter part of 15, the Lord saw it, and it displeased him, and there was no justice, that there was no justice. So, so, so God is, is upset about this. Just like some of us would expect. He is, he is upset. 16 then says, He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. It's worded in such a way as it, it pictures God looking and saying, 
What's the solution going to be? Now, we know God knows what the solution is going to be because some of these things are ordained from eternity past, like Ephesians 1 talks about. But the image here is, from a, from a human perspective, um, God, God looks and says, well, what are we going to do about this problem? There, there, there's, there's no righteous man. There, there's no one to represent the people. And they need to be represented by, by, by a human. They can't have an, an angel be their mediator because an angel isn't a human. This is just how God works, starting with Adam. So what does he do? Well, he doesn't spell it out here, but I don't know about you. When I read those words, and if you've been reading the Bible very long, some of you haven't, but if you've been reading the Bible very long, you read that verse in verse 16. There's no man and wonder what, uh, that there was no one to intercede. You start connecting dots mentally. And you're thinking, this is fascinating. I mean, I don't know about you, but my mind races to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 where it says there is one God and one mediator, one intercessor, one who will intercede, one God and one man. I'm saying it wrong. How does it go? There's one mediator between God and man. Okay, one intercessor, one mediator between God and man. The man, ha, ah, that's Isaiah kind of language, the man Christ Jesus. I don't know if Paul had this in mind or not, but he certainly had the same understanding in mind. Christ is going to be the one. God says, all right, who, who's going to represent them? There, there's nobody righteous that can't represent them. Well, we know there is going to be one righteous who represents them. It's going to be provided by God through his son, the one intercessor, the one mediator. It's exciting stuff. A foretaste of 1 Timothy 2, 5. 16 then goes on to say, then his own arm, let's, let's make sure we understand that for double emphasis, then his own arm, it's his, the power will come from him, the work will come from him, his own arm brought him salvation. So it's all of God. Salvation is going to fully come from him. And his righteousness upheld him. I mean, this is fascinating when it comes to thinking about Christ and it comes to thinking about how God is going to save even the wording that he's using here verse 17 he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak Notice he's, he, he's donning the armor. He's putting on this armor because he's putting on an armor and he's going to come and he's going to come and rescue. And he's going to come and he's going to judge. This is what happens. God will do something and has done something in Christ. Christ is the rescuer. He's going to unpack that for us. And he's also the judge. That prayer that people say, God, justice, please make every wrong right. It's going to be answered. In God's perfect timing, it's going to be answered through Christ. So let's keep, keep moving with, with that in mind. Verse 18, I think, is where we are. According to their deeds, notice that, that's fair, that's justice. Giving people what they've earned. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. So notice we've got from west to east, we would say from east to west. It's universal. No one will, will escape this. There will be perfect justice on the earth one day and it will be, as we will see in a moment, through Christ. 
It goes on to say in verse 19, for he will come as a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. Indeed, that something in you and there's that something in every single human being who's been made in the image of God, who wants justice when you see the crimes on CNN or Fox News or whatever it is you watch or subscribe to. And you say, that's not right. That needs to be solved. There needs to be justice. That actually is a good thing coming from your heart because it shows you're made in the image of God and that actually will happen one day. You just want to make sure you're on the right side of it, trusting in a redeemer so you're not getting what you deserve. But the promise here is it's going to happen. This does help us, by the way, like in Isaiah 9, we say at Christmas time, the government shall rest on his shoulders. Yeah, that's second coming stuff. You should know and I should know that a day is coming when justice will be done. There's a reason why Christians are not called to take up arms and to seek justice, vengeance. We're starting to understand better why the Bible would say, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. There's coming a time where everything will be balanced. Perfect reconciliation will happen. It's going to happen in Christ. It's going to happen in Christ. The incarnate one will be the one to do it. Verse 20 says, and a redeemer will come to Zion. So now here's the positive side of it. He's not only coming as judge, he's coming as redeemer. So it's not only that second coming stuff, but there's first coming stuff. Verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion. He will come to the people of God, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression We've already seen everyone's a transgressor of the law of God. So here, for those who turn from transgression, those who are repentant, those who are genuine believers, trusting in Him, He says, declares the Lord. 21, as for me, this is my covenant with them. Please notice the the emphasis there. As for me, this is God talking. He he says, this is what I'm going to do. This is my covenant with them. I love even the wording. It's not, this is our covenant. This is our contract. This is our agreement. You do your part. I'll do my part. He says, no, that's not what we're talking about here. This is my covenant, my official contract, my official promise that I am making and I will keep True to my own promise. It's exciting. This is Christmassy. (laughs) Because as we'll see, this is new covenant talk. This is salvation talk. God is going to do it. He's the maker and the keeper of His promises. My covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit is that, that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. And we read that and, and, and a lot of us, if you're like me, you really weren't raised in, in a good Bible teaching home. Some of you have been. I wasn't. So if, if you're not like me, if you're raised in a good Bible teaching home, you're saying, you know what, I know what he's talking about. I've read enough of the Bible to know what he's talking about. If you're like me, you're kind of going, sounds good. Pastor told me it was Christmassy, but I'm kind of out of the loop. To bring us all to the same place. Undeniably, this is what's called elsewhere in the Bible, new covenant. This is new covenant talk. 
This is, this is about Christ. This is about Jesus. This is about the one that, that, that we acknowledge as the Savior. How will, be the, how will it be that God will keep his promises so that there can be redemption? Well, this has, this has new covenant fingerprints all over. This is new covenant talk. And in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is called the mediator, the intercessor, remember? The mediator of the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. You can write it in your margin. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, new covenant that is described in the same way our verses are described in Isaiah 59. And then there are those familiar words to you if you've ever been in a church more than about twice. These words, and likewise the cup after supper they took after eating, saying, this is Jesus, this cup is poured out for you, and it is the new covenant in my blood. We start gathering those new covenant passages and we see the Isaiah 59 promise as a new covenant promise. This is extraordinary. This is joy to the world. Did you notice at the end of our chapter those statements about to your children to your children's children. Did you notice that statement of universality even or eternality where it says at the very end, the last word in my translation, it says forevermore. This is the plan. This is the plan for, for all the ages. This is not just for the people he's talking to in the then and there and eventually God will have to have another plan. That's as if he'd have to have another son because this is through the one and only son. This is the one and only plan of redemption. This is how anyone who would ever be reconciled to God be reconciled to God. This is how it happens. There's hope. There's hope for all the nations of the earth, you could say. This is grounded way back in Genesis 3, Genesis 22, Abrahamic covenant promised there. All the nations of the earth will be blessed in you, through you, which is tied to the new covenant. I'm telling you more than you want to know right now, probably. But I'm pretty excited about it because Christmas is amazing. If you're thinking about the coming of Christ. See, what's happening is all of these promises that God has made, God has made, God has made, come to fruition come to climax in his most excellent, exalted son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Truly amazing. Truly amazing. Joy to the world. Peace on earth. The reality is there is no peace on the earth right now. But it's as good as done because of the work of the son. He's the mediator of the new covenant. And we're seeing Isaiah put those two realities together. So I hope you're more impressed with Christ this morning. I hope you've got some questions. Hopefully you don't have more questions than answers. But to be more impressed with Christ that this isn't plan B that he just thought up. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is the answer. It's the answer to the question, why doesn't God do something? He has, and He will. It is a rich, 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 great, glorious gospel. And you're in a place to understand it and worship God because of it. And you're in a place to be a good ambassador to an asking world, even if they don't ask it in the way I posed it this morning. They're asking it. 
why doesn't God do something? You can be a great ambassador and help people connect the dots this Christmas time to understand why it's such a big deal to have the baby born in Bethlehem. May God help us to see Christ for who He is. And may God help us to see Him for who He is and speak truthfully and joyfully about Him so that He might be glorified, so that He might be honored. Because we have a great Savior, the mediator of the new covenant, the eternal redemptive plan of God that is sure for us in Christ is an awesome thing. Merry Christmas. Guilt. No more guilt. Gratitude. Because God the Father treated the Son as if He were guilty, even though He wasn't. So that those of us who are guilty and trust in the Son who was treated as if He were guilty, though He wasn't, can have our guilt removed and have peace with God. Good news. Christ the Lord is born today. We rejoice because He's our Redeemer. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank You so much for the glorious reality of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to understand and to respond with praise and thanksgiving. We are unworthy of your loving kindness, of your grace. Help us to speak appropriately about your Son with joy in our hearts. We're people who've been pardoned. And not only have we been pardoned, we've been credited with the perfect righteousness of Christ. What a great and gracious gift it is to us to know that we're in Christ and to know that you accept us and embrace us as your children because of your great son, Jesus. Thank you so very much for allowing us to be reminded of your great gift even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.